0: Well, good morning for those who are new or a guest here or if you're joining us online for the first time. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and I don't think it would be a stretch to say that perhaps the most pressing question of our moment is this, what does it mean to be human If you haven't noticed, uh, the discussions that are happening in our wider world, as well as within the Christian community, discussions around being human often center on how we understand what it means to be male and female. And I am so glad that God has not left us on our own to try to figure that out. Um, For as we saw at the beginning of our Shaped series, humans, male and female, are made, both of them, in the image of God. And we saw that image of God, that, that idiom in Hebrew, uh, primarily refers to a task. To image God is a job description. It's something that we do. It's a priestly function. And the Bible, it ends in Revelation 22 by taking us back to that original human mandate that we will reign with God forever. And so, as I was preparing the Shaped series way back in the fall, maybe even the end of summer, preparing for what I was going to teach on there, I knew that there was one outstanding question that I needed to speak to. And it's this, how does God intend for men and women to function together as his people within the church? Or maybe to sharpen the question a little bit, does the Bible teach in such a way that it limits The ways in which women may serve. Like, can they preach? Can they be in leading roles? Could they be a a deacon or a pastor? And I think that's especially important to speak to uh, here at Summit Drive because we are a people, if you haven't noticed, who come from a wide variety of backgrounds. We have people from all sorts and all stripes who gather here to worship Jesus every week. And I know, uh, from many conversations I've had with you over the years and, and, and have been a part of that not everybody agrees on how we would go about even figuring out this question, let alone the conclusions we come to. So we're going to look at this, is is that question, as, as a big tent kind of church, we recognize that there are going to be legitimate differences in how people think about this question. There really will be. And these are really important Uh, However, as a church, we would say we gather around the core issues of Christian faith, of the Orthodox Christian faith. From there, there's secondary issues, and these things matter deeply, but people are able to disagree on them and still be within the Orthodox Christian faith. And then there are tertiary issues. These are what Paul calls adephoria. It's a Greek word for kind of like just matters of opinion, that you might disagree with people on and and that's no big deal, it's easy. But here's what I would say is um, I would not call the question of like women in ministry a core issue. It's not on the level of the divinity of Jesus. It doesn't define if you are a Christian or not what you believe about this matter. So people of true Christian faith and practice can differ on this and still be Orthodox Christians. And that means it's possible to disagree and continue to function as a church in love and unity. It also means that if it's not a core issue, that if you happen to be wrong about your beliefs about it, that doesn't mean that you're not saved, right? So you just take a deep breath and be like, okay, (laughs) that matters. So having said all that, however, from the standpoint of how we function as a church, how women order their lives, this matters deeply. It can't be left on... Uh, as sort of a theoretical question just to think about or to write about or to discuss, we actually have to figure out what we're going to do with it, right? It's, it's something uh, where implications for real life cannot be avoided. And it's deeply personal. For more than half the church, it's deeply personal. Like either women lead worship or they don't. Either they lead in public prayer or they don't. Either they teach and they preach or they don't. Either we tell women who sense God's calling on them and sense gifting for maybe leading ministries, sorry, you can't pursue that, or we find ways to support them. So it's important for you to know that we as a, as a church body here at Summit Drive, our practice on these matters have been well established over a decade ago, before my time as lead pastor here. Uh, We've been supportive of women in leadership and in teaching, and I want to help show you why that's the case and why it's the Bible that leads us to that conclusion and not something uh, that leads us away from it. So these next two weeks really are kind of like a mini-series that still falls under our Shape series, because we've been talking about how God gifts us for ministry, how calls us to ministry, so this still matters within the context of thinking about our ministry and our life together as a church. And there's no way I can address every every facet of this topic. Um, I'm going to do two parts. Today, we're going to deal with a specific text that is often thought to limit women's roles In public ministry. And we're going to talk about that text in great detail. And just like, it's just going to be a masterclass on how to read the Bible well. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to like talk about reading the Bible in context, in its original language. And then next week, we're going to talk a lot more about the implications of this. Like, how does this matter for how we function as a church? So if today leaves you a little confused, that's fine. Go back and listen again (laughs) to it if you need to. Uh, And next week, we'll kind of fill in more of the details, historically speaking, as well. So, Today, we're going to talk about three things, culture and scripture, Paul and women, and the meaning of 1 Timothy in context. Let's just pray as we begin. Our Father, we thank you that uh, through your spirit, you've inspired these texts to be written just as they are. And you inspired them to be written at a time in history for particular purposes, and we ask that. Us standing at a long distance, you would just help to give us understanding, but more than that, not just understanding, you would help us to stand under your word, to submit to it wherever it leads us. For you, God, have spoken, and we want to listen and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, a note on culture and scripture. Um, There is a concern that I think can be very legitimate. Uh, it might come from Christians who say, "Well, if we maybe examine or reevaluate how women function in ministry, we're on a on a path where we're just like bending over into cultural pressure." Do you know what? That could be true. That happens in churches, so we have to be aware of that. That could be true, but this is important. I personally. Our church community over the years and our conference as the North American Baptist Conference uh, don't come to the conclusions that we do where we support women in church leadership as a bending to cultural pressure or having some kind of like covert, radical, feminist agenda. No, it comes from a deep commitment to Scripture understood in its original languages and in its first context. And we're going to look more at history next week, but you should probably know that the earliest Baptists, we're talking the 1600s. For the first 50 years of the Baptist movement, women preached regularly on Sunday mornings. They led in pastoral cases. So that was deeply countercultural at the time. And they came to those conclusions because of the Bible. And I think they were probably right. And we'll talk about more of why that is. So this isn't just a new thing, by the way. This isn't new in the last 20 years, uh, as though the 1940s were our ultimate reference point for what's true. It's not. Uh, we want to look at Scripture. And we want to look at how Christians throughout the centuries have handled Scripture. But there's another point as well that we need to think about. Um, I would point out that while Christian people often talk about being influenced by our culture, and we need to be aware of that, we are all influenced by our cultures, plural. That includes our church cultures. I recently had a pastor just in a private conversation relay to me that in the circles of churches he's a part of and the pastors that he knows, to even suggest that it's possible to think about women being in leading areas of ministry, he would be shunned. He would have to step outside of it. There was a strong social taboo uh, within his own church culture experience. And so bless him, he was able to see that this was a church culture that was shaping his assumptions and approach to this question deeply. So he had to stand back and be, be aware of that church culture that kept him from exploring what the Bible really teaches about this. Uh, on the other hand, I had another pastor who told me, hey, I grew up in a Pentecostal church environment where the view is basically this. If she has the spiritual gifts, then of course she can lead. But then when this pastor went to seminary, he started studying the Bible, and he had to stand back and say, oh, wow, what does the Bible really teach about this? Maybe we're wrong about it. And so he lent in, and he recognized that his church culture also shaped him to a particular conclusion that needed to be uh, examined, biblically speaking. So here's two good examples of people who could recognize that there's cultures and cultural pressures Uh, And then to honestly say, I need to recognize our biases, and then it's not that you can set them aside, you can never not have biases, but when you recognize them, you might ask yourself more questions. Am I reading it this way because of a cultural bias, because of a church culture bias? And so we need to all be aware of our biases and need to say, let's go and see what the scriptures teach in their original language, in their original setting and be open to whatever God says. You know, I grew up in a church setting where uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, we'll look at it in a moment, um, it was seen as a blanket prohibition for all times and all places of women in any sort of like preaching or leading roles, wherever men were included. Some Christian communities, uh, this text functions, as you might say, a gatekeeper text. It's kind of a grid that you have to start there and then you can look at all those other examples, but then you rush back to this text to say, well, whatever this says, this defines everything else. And here's where that can become problematic, is that if this is a grid text and you come to a certain conclusion on it, then every other positive example or place where women are elevated in the scriptures or uh, seen for having significant roles have to either be downplayed. Or explained away. And so we're going to talk more about that a little bit more next week as well. So, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at this text in its original historical context in relation to the broader canonical context, which means the whole of Scripture. And then we're going to pay particular attention to the grammar and language and linguistics of the moment. And I think we're going to see that Paul does not intend for this to be a one time command for every setting but it's limited in its application. So first of all, Paul and women. Let's talk about that piece. Uh, Paul essentially follows the logic of what Jesus is up to. Jesus is our Lord, right? Paul isn't, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, is following his Lord Jesus, who when Jesus comes on the scene, begins to step over all kinds of socio- religious bounds and taboos in order to show the dignity of women that they'd never experienced quite the same way before. And uh, he calls them to be disciples to him, just like male disciples. He invites them to learn alongside. According to the Gospels, it was women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and then Jesus sends these women out to announce the news that he has been raised from the dead to his male disciples. Um, God in his sovereignty could have arranged that otherwise, but he doesn't, and I think that's important for us to at least carry with us as we think about this. Uh, Paul acknowledges many women as his co-workers in the gospel. He uses the exact same phraseology as he does with his male uh, co-workers in the gospel as well, so the language that he uses doesn't differentiate in how he calls them his co-workers in the gospel. He acknowledges women in the key leadership and teaching roles in the early life of the church. And here's just a couple examples we'll look at more next week. But if you've got your Bibles, flip to Romans uh, chapter 1, or pardon me, verse, <laughs> chapter 16, verse 1. He writes this, "'I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people,' And give her any help that she might need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Why does he send this note about Phoebe? Well, because she is the letter carrier. She's the person that Paul has entrusted to take the letter that he's written from prison to this group of, um, not from prison, pardon me, this is not a prison epistle, (laughs) to take this letter that he's written to the people of Rome. And it's important for us to know this. A letter carrier in the ancient world is also the person who's responsible to read it out loud. And they read it out loud and they do something else. They are the ones who can explain if people are like, whoa, what did Paul mean when he said this? The person who's the letter carrier is the reader of the text and the person who explains the text. Phoebe, a woman... Is probably the first person to read the book of Romans and explain what it means to a group of people in a church setting. Um, If that's true, and it likely is, then here you have an example of a woman doing something of what we call preaching on a Sunday morning standing in front of people, reading the text, and explaining what it means. So Paul commends her, welcome her. She's got an important task to do, she's been important in my ministry. We're going to look closer at this. And if you just go down a few verses, we'll look at Romans 16 in more detail next week, but we read of Paul's commendation of another woman. He says this in verse six or verse seven, pardon me. Greet Andronicus and Junia. It's probably a husband and wife team. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Junia is a female. She and Andronicus are said to be outstanding among the apostles. And I know that there are translations that have tried to figure a way around this. We're going to talk about more about the translation of this text next week, um, but this is the best reading of the text. There's translations that have tried to like downplay this. Why? Because it would be shocking if a woman was called an apostle. An apostle is a significant church-planting leadership role more, Paul sees the prophetic gift as having an important teaching function in churches. Um, Prophecy often includes teaching, includes instruction. That's prophetic work. In Luke 2, we hear of Anna, the prophet. Uh, In Acts 21, we read of four daughters of Philip the evangelist who prophesied. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions to women about covering their heads when they pray and prophesy, and he's talking about in a church setting, and that would mean where men are present as well. Here's just what I hope you're seeing with just a very brief summary of some of these questions of Paul and women. Um, In these examples, and we'll see more next week, in the most honest estimation, Paul names women in significant leading and teaching roles in the church. But this would be terribly inconsistent with how 1 Timothy chapter 2 is often understood. Uh, These are positive examples, you might say, that end up having to be explained away, or maybe we just have read 1 Timothy 2 not very well. (laughs) And so we need to look at that text again. So let's look at the text in context. Again, this is just kind of like how you study a passage. We're just going to do that today with 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. You can open to 1 Timothy. That would be great. And we're actually going to start in, in uh, chapter 1, where we have to ask the question, what kind of writing is this? What sort of literature are we dealing with? Here's what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true son in the faith. What kind of letter is this? It's a personal letter between Paul and Timothy. Yes, the letter is meant to be overheard by the broader community, and it's in our New Testament because it does have application for the church more universally, absolutely. But we have to be careful to still understand Paul's intent within its first setting and to realize it was written to deal with issues that Timothy was facing on the ground in Ephesus at the moment. It's not a general letter. It's not a manual for church life, though it does include implications for us today. Second thing, Paul tells us why he's writing the letter. Look next at verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Why does Paul write this letter? What is he trying to do? He's trying to stop the spread of false teaching that's happening within that city. He's also concerned that whatever happens in that church is going to be advancing God's work. So the challenge with a letter like this is that we are like overhearing one part of a, of a conversation on the telephone. If you can imagine someone having a conversation on the phone, you only hear one speaker. You don't hear, what they're, you don't hear everything else that the other person's saying. And so we have, to, um, we have to do some work to, of, like, reconstructing the situation. Uh, it just is what you do when you study Paul's personal letters because he's not telling us everything. He and Timothy share a whole bunch of information from their shared life and ministry <clears throat> that we're not privy to. So we have to keep reading the letter to find out more of what's actually going on. And he does, Paul does sketch out some of the details, not all of it, about what the false teaching is all about and who it's impacting. <clears throat> Ricky, I might get you to get me a glass of water. I don't know why I just drank coffee instead of water all morning. <laughs> so here we are. Um, in, in chapter 4, verse 3, if you just look over there for a second, Paul says that the false teachers forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. This suggests that there's no procreation right? People aren't getting married, there's no pregnancies, there's no childbearing. And Paul will say no way to that idea. This shows up in Paul's instructions and it's, and it's why, one of the reasons why he brings the creation story into the instructions that he gives us. But that also kind of signals to us we've got to back up to the larger, um, you know, the whole scriptures or canonical context as well. to to think about the Genesis narrative because Paul mentions it here. In Genesis, we see again how God creates humanity, male and female, in his own image for a shared priestly ministry over the world. God says that the first word of something that's not good in this text, in the story so far, goes like this. Oh, thank you so much. Bless you. So in Genesis 2, we've heard it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, all through Genesis 1. Then he, in Genesis 2, we hear something that's not good. God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. And the Hebrew word here is Ezer, suitable for him. So God forms the woman, we read from his side. And as Augustine and others have suggested, it's his not from his feet to be under him, not from his head to be over him, but from his side, as a picture of equal partnership in that priestly ministry of ruling creation. And that word for helper, or ezer in Hebrew, it is not equivalent to subordinate. It's not a little buddy. This isn't an assistant. It's used 20 times, the word ezer in the Old Testament, 20 times. 17 of those, the referent is God. God is our helper. None of them, None of the uses of Ezra suggests subordination in the Hebrew text. She is, as the man will say, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Finally, he has someone who would be his equal, a suitable partner. She would be one flesh with him, not an underling, not a different sort of thing, a one flesh thing. John Walton says in his excellent commentary on Genesis, he says, Genesis 2 offers no articulation of gender roles. The text is concerned with human roles, not gender roles. Man and woman serve together. Here's the second thing to see. The man receives a direct command from God not to eat of the tree, and he receives that in Genesis 2 before the woman is formed. But the woman, part three, has not been adequately informed about this command. When tempted, she gets the details wrong. The man is right there beside her, we find out, and he says nothing. They both step over the line. They take of the fruit. If anything, the man is more liable, for he's had a direct command from God. She's had to rely on him to educate her about this. So this event in Genesis 3 is often called the fall, and it is accompanied by a series of curses that are consequences for humanity's disobedience. And there's, there's one that's of a particular note that we'll focus in on, because we've got to get to our main text today. <laughs> To the woman, God says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. But what, what does that mean, especially the last line? John Walton persuasively argues that there isn't a hint of subordination in Genesis 2, so that line, he will rule over you, cannot be a reaffirmation of something that's not there. This is something new in the situation. Uh, scholar David Atkinson, in his Genesis commentary, says of this statement, He will rule over you is not a divine prescription of what should be, but a description in the fallen world of what will be. This isn't describing God's creational intent. It's describing what happens when sin distorts humanity's relationship with each other. So in this fall, in this, this new situation, this rule by the husband is not a God-given role. It is not prescriptive. It's a description of how the husband, the biologically different and physically bigger and stronger, will often misuse his strength, and sin will distort that relationship deeply. The rest of the story of the Bible is really good news because that situation is being redeemed in Jesus. The whole rest of the Bible is about how God restores us to relationship with him, but also in our relationships with each other, including healing the divide that we see mentioned right here in this text. And now, with all of that, let's go back to 1 Timothy. We're going to go to chapter 4, verse 7, and Paul refers to the spreading of godless myths and old wives' tales And we hear that there's women who are going around from house to house, and he says, saying things they ought not to. And then Paul says in 5.15 that some of these women have in fact turned away to follow Satan. That should send your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and the deception of Eve by Satan there. So, there is false teaching, right? That's what Paul's trying to correct. There are godless myths and old wives' tales circulating in the Christian community, which bring us back to Paul's main concern in the letter. And he doesn't deviate from this concern for a moment. Everything he says is about the same purpose of the letter. He says Timothy must do several things to put a stop to what's happening there. So, if we go to chapter 2 now, (laughs) we're finally getting closer. We have to talk about the literary context, if you have the NIV Bible, which I typically use, um, it's, it, it's got a heading right beforehand. It says, Instruction for Worship, Instructions on Worship. You need to know those headings are not in the original text. Those are editors' decisions to put those there. So, if you read the NIV Bible, you're going to go, oh, this is about Christian worship setting. And I would say, not so fast. I don't think there's anything that follows this that's directing our attention to a Christian worship setting, to be honest. And many editors don't include that for this reason. So what you get is he says, therefore, un in the Greek, therefore, meaning he's still talking about false teaching. Therefore, what does he want people to do? To pray. Everybody, you need to pray. You need to pray that God will be king over everything. Pray for your leaders. He tells people to pray. That's how you begin to address false teaching. Then he gets specific. He'll say, I want the men to do this. Men, and he says, everywhere, not in church setting, everywhere, lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. So men are told to pray in a way that puts aside anger and disputing. If you want to have a take-home from today, there's one. Men, if you get hot and bothered about this question or any others, anger and disputing, it's not the answer. You need to pray like this. God, I trust you. God, you're the king. I'm not going to be angry or divisive about things, Hey, There's a take-home for us. Let's keep going, though. Step two, he's got to address women in general. And he gives us, I actually think this signals a little bit more of what's going on in the city. He does mention men angry, disputing, that's a problem, and the false teaching that's going on probably includes a lot of that happening for the men, but for the women, there's something else. And he mentions women, plural, like all of them, are to dress with modesty, with decency and propriety. Now, there's several factors here in the rest of the letter that link this to what's likely one of the false teaching pieces in the city. Michael Byrd, a great scholar, summarizes like this. There was a sexual revolution taking place in the first century, and many well-to-do women of the upper classes had taken to acting promiscuously. These new Roman wives dressed in such a way as to indicate they were sexually available. The advent of the new Roman women in cities like Ephesus meant that some females of the upper echelons of society were determined to remain unencumbered by children, whether that was through abstinence or abortion. They aspired for the sexual freedoms of non-Christian men. They threw off apparel, symbolizing modesty and chastity, and were brazenly outspoken in public forums. Uh, Bruce Winters has a great paper on that being and and just gathering the evidence of why that's the case for many cities like Ephesus at that time. Scholar Cynthia Long Westfall puts it like this, the false teachers in Ephesus taught women to avoid marriage and having children and encouraged them in immodest and ostentatious behavior in dress and lifestyle. The next step in Paul's approach leads, well, to our main text today, to put a stop to this kind of brazen behavior and the spread of false teaching, myths, and endless genealogies by addressing concerns about women and how they were being deceived and deceiving others. So now we're going to move to more of a grammatical linguistic analysis of our text. Push my fake glasses up my nose for a moment here. Okay, Um, Verses 11 to 15. Here we go. You ready? No? (laughs) Maybe? (laughs) I am. Here's what it says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's dig in because every single word, every phrase matters to how we understand this in its context. So I've got lots of linguistic notes, but here we go. Look again at verse 11. There is a shift from women, plural, to a woman, singular. The shift also is in relation to the man. He was talking about men, plural, in terms of prayer. Now it shifts to a man. It shifts to singular for both of them. And the word gune in Greek can be translated two ways. It's either woman or its wife. So a woman or a wife should learn. Again, uh, andros is for men. Also can be translated husband. So that's important for us to know. That The translators have to make a decision here about what's happening based on context. I think this is maybe another signal why this is not addressing a public worship setting or all women in general as a blanket universal command. Paul is likely encouraging men, husbands, to teach their wives in their home setting. Men would have had more access to education, possibly more understanding. And so in doing that, to avoid the way Eve was deceived in the Genesis narrative. The wives' women were being deceived in Ephesus in a similar way. Here, Paul is addressing false teaching that's spreading among women, which leads to the need for the wife or woman to learn. Now, in the reference to Adam and Eve, Paul notes specifically how Adam was created first and then Eve and that Eve was the one who was deceived and stepped over the line or boundary. It's actually not the, word, the common word for sin here. It's a different one. It's transgressor or someone who steps over a boundary. Uh, now, question, does Paul think that Eve was the only one liable for sin entering the human story? Or does he think that women are inherently more gullible? Not at all. When he's talking about sin and salvation, when that's the context in Romans chapter 5, he talks about Adam. It's Adam through whom sin enters the world. So, so if you thought, oh, he's actually just pinning all the blame on women here, he's not because we know from elsewhere in a public letter that he says Adam is the one who is the kind of fountainhead of the human race in terms of our sin, okay? So it's not that. <laughs> Uh, then the only other place in the New Testament that ench- mentions Eve by name, like at all, is another context where she's described as being deceived, and it's where Paul is concerned about the whole church being deceived, like Eve. This is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere in pure devotion to Christ. There, Paul is using the analogy of Eve's deception for why the church needs to, uh, to not be deceived, how the church could be liable to deception. It's not specifically about women. So he can apply the Eve deception to the whole church in other places as well. I think Paul's probably using the analogy in the same way in this situation. The emphasis in both places is on how Eve was deceived led into untruth. And that's happening among the Ephesian women of Paul's day. What's the antidote? It's for husbands, again, who would have more access to education, to teach their wives, to help them learn the faith. The thing Adam failed to properly do, and that led to Eve being deceived. So it's no surprise that the only command, there's only one imperative in this whole text. Imperative mood in any grammar means it's a command text. The only command is this, let the wife or woman learn. She should learn in quietness and full submission. That's the only command. Learning is the antidote to false teaching. The reference then to quietness and full submission is the same posture that would be expected of any believer to take under the teaching of God's word, men included. So that's not something different for men than would be for women in this case either. But the fact that Paul needs to mention it indicates the kind of posture women were typically taking maybe being influenced by that kind of new Roman woman posture we mentioned. And that would be not one of being quiet and ready to learn, but abrasive and even overturning cultural ideals of the time, of the broader culture, which would bring shame and embarrassment on their husbands and on the church within that society. Like this is not how things should go, either in the home or in the church. And it would also impact Paul's other great concern that the church be spreading the gospel in a way that people can actually hear. So the posture of a quiet, ready learner would address this issue. And this brings us to the, probably the, the most argued about verse in the whole of the New Testament. You ready for that? Here we go. Uh, this is what many people see as a blanket prohibition on women teaching or having authority. Let's look at it again, verse 12. I do not permit a woman, singular or wife, to teach or assume authority, authentine, it's a Greek word, probably best translated control, dominate, violently take charge of, overpower, over a man. Andros, man or husband, singular again. She must be quiet, hesukia, still, restful, peaceful. How do we understand this? Again, Paul could have been speaking in plural pronouns, but he doesn't. So, the home setting might be the best interpretation for why that is. Might be. Could be otherwise, but it seems like that's likely. Since this is a personal letter between Paul and Timothy, it's likely that he's instructing this young man on how he's dealt with similar problems. You see, in 1 Corinthians 14, there are women who are disruptive in the church setting. And he commands them what? To be silent? And if they have questions, don't start yelling at each other across the sanctuary they should be quiet and go home and ask their husbands at home. That's his instruction. So Paul has dealt with, hey, you need to ask women to be quiet sometimes. He's dealt with that before, which may be why he says, this is my own practice, I do not permit a woman. See, he could have said it in the imperative mood, the command mood, women must not teach. It could have been plural, but it's not. I do not permit a woman to teach. And this is maybe the most important thing. If Paul wanted a blanket prohibition on women teaching, the least likely place, because you see this is really the only text in the, in, the, in the Bible that says something like this, the least likely place would be in a personal letter between Paul and Timothy. Where it's just addressing one person and specifically dealing with an issue that Timothy is facing in the church on the ground in the city of Ephesus. We would expect to find a prohibition in the book of Romans. Romans. This is a public letter written to the whole church where he's laying down a great deal of practical theology about gifting and using your gifts in a church setting. See, if a woman was listening to Romans chapter 12 being read out loud, remember, maybe by Phoebe, and when it says this, if your gift is to teach, then teach, she could say, oh, I have that gift. Here's what you don't see. If Paul wanted a blanket prohibition on women teaching in public, we would expect him to follow up with this. This, of course, is reserved for men only. And maybe give us a reason why. But he doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't believe that. (laughs) The gifts don't come in pink and blue. He doesn't list some for women and others for men. He, He just doesn't. And he then goes on to commend many women in Romans 16 at the end of the letter and elsewhere. And that's why I think he doesn't believe that's true. So why are they not to teach? Because they're spreading false teaching. And that's happening among women and wives in that cities. They need to learn first. But then what about that authority part? Maybe that's really the crux of it. Well, it's often assumed and unfortunately translated that teach and have authority or assumed authority in the NIV are both being viewed in a positive sense or at least neutral. Uh, that was, learning that that's not the case is probably the biggest thing. As I learned to read Greek and I've spent seven years of my life doing Greek studies, it made me stop and just like rethink all of my assumptions about this text. The New Testament has a number of words it uses for authority, about proper God-given authority, which the church needs to have, by the way. The most common that Paul uses is excusia. And there are other words that Paul uses even in 1 1 Timothy to designate and delegate proper pastoral care and authority. But authentane the word that he uses here, is only used one time in the New Testament, right here. Which means that you have to look outside of the New Testament if you want to know what that word actually means. And when you begin to look outside, um, well, here's what it means. It means to dominate. It means to control. It means to seize authority inappropriately. It can refer to Murder to violence, to suicide, in a few cases that it is used by Christian writers like in later centuries, in a positive way, the object of the verb is never a person, but it's a situation that requires a strong approach to it. It's a situation, never a person. So let's look at some older translations that predate all of the modern debates Uh, about translation, and so just maybe see a few of these. Uh, Early church, let's look at the Old Latin. This is 2nd century to 4th century. Neither to dominate a man. And so we're fairly close to the time period where people would have understood what that word means, right? Uh, The Vulgate, uh, again, it's a Latin translation, 4th to 5th centuries, neither to domineer over a man. The Coptic, Sahidic, not to be lord over him. Or to jump a few centuries into the Reformation era, the Wycliffe Bible of 1384 says, neither to have lordship on the husband, or the King James Version, nor to usurp authority over a husband. Uh, Modern translations in some other languages, uh, the Spanish United Bible Society of uh, 1966, I'm not going to read it in Spanish, I would butcher that, uh, nor to dominate the man. Or the Jerusalem Bible in French, neither to lay down the law for the man. The international standard version, I am not allowing a woman to instigate conflict toward a man, or the common English Bible, or to control her husband. Essentially, what Paul is talking about here isn't shorthand for loving, supportive authority of a church leader. No Christian pastor, no Christian leader, no follower of Jesus of any sort is ever to exercise a over another person. But that's what some wives were doing to their husbands, and it needs to stop. Jesus is clear that the way of Christian leadership and authority, how it's used, is in the care and service of others. Those who lead are told to not lord it over them like Gentile rulers of the people, but to be a slave of all. So what does Paul mean in this text? What does this mean? Is he restricting women or... A woman or women in general from the exercise of good and godly authority like that of a pastor or a church leader, if he meant that, I think he would have used the same word he always uses to talk about that kind of authority like excusia, but he doesn't because this isn't about that. There is no case in all of the 300 plus references in the ancient world where authentine is used where it expresses the kind of leadership or authority that a Christian is to use. Never is it used in that way. I don't think Paul is going to be original in that sense when he's got a lot of other options open to him. So last, Paul uses Adam and Eve as an analogy for correcting the deception. In a similar way to how he uses the analogy in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he will go on to the true creation story as an analogy for addressing that deception. So Paul introduces the analogy. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women, that's the NIV. Actually, it's singular. (laughs) That makes it sound like it's shifting to the plural already. It's not. But a woman will be saved, which could be translated delivered or protected, through childbearing or childbirth, If they, it switches to the plural all of a sudden. That's interesting. Why? Got to ask that question. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. You might be thinking, I thought we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. What on earth? And if you're thinking that, you're right. Which tells you we need more context to understand this. A simple reading of this, we just have to require thinking a bit more about what's going on between Paul and Timothy in that church. Um, it can mean a part of me. It can't mean saved because she's having children. Paul advocates for singleness and celibacy in other places. It can't mean if you're a woman, you need to have babies and that's how you're saved. No way. That would go against everything Paul has ever said about salvation. Everything that the Bible teaches about how you're saved. That can't be it. Um, others have suggested that the childbearing means the birth of a child, meaning the birth of Jesus. It's actually forced, and scholars admit that really doesn't work with the grammar. So you're still contending with what on earth does he mean by this text? Paul is still dealing with false teaching. He hasn't deviated from that. He's dealing with how to correct it. And the analogy of Adam and Eve works to address that. See, we know from Acts chapter 19 that in the city of Ephesus, Artemis was one of the false gods who was worshipped. My wife and I have been there. There's still like one of the ancient wonders of the world is a a pillar from the temple to Artemis. Uh, She was a big deal there. Um, Paul had to deal decisively with the idolatrous practices as he brought the gospel there. And Artemis in that culture was seen as the protector of women, especially those in childbirth. One of Artemis' titles was Savior. This is a hymn to Artemis that we have from the ancient world. It reads this way. The cities of men, I, Artemis, will visit only when women, vexed by the sharp pangs of childbirth, call me to their aid. Even the hour when I was born, the fates ordained that I should be their helper. In this hymn, Artemis is said to be the, helpful, the helper me in this painful, dangerous moment of childbirth. She says, women are to call to me. How's that for a deep deception? An idolatrous, dangerous, godless wives' tale. It's entirely likely that there was a syncretism. Like, who's, who's attending at these childbirths? Other women, probably from your church. Syncretism means bringing together maybe the Christian faith and the things that you've relied on in the past. What should a Christian woman do in childbirth? Call to Artemis? Never. The husband and wife together need to order their home and thus that element of the learning command for the wife to continue in faith. They, now we're at a plural. They, who's they? Probably the husband and wife. That they continue in faith, love, and holiness. They need to center their lives on Jesus, the giver of life. Rather than call on Artemis, they are to trust God, the one who saves. Now this may include turning to God in prayer for that childbirth, that it would go well. Of course, it's not a guarantee that, you know, a woman is not going to face injury or death in childbirth, but it certainly does mean putting away any kind of deceptive false teaching. For the condition of being saved in the sense of being accepted by God, it does require faith in Jesus, and it requires them continuing to have faith in Jesus and to ordering their lives according to his love and his holiness. So, to conclude, biblical scholar Michael Byrd summarizes this passage helpfully. He says this, Paul does not want women dominating by propounding false doctrine in the Ephesian house churches. Paul is writing to a situation where certain well-to-do women riding the cultural wave of feminine liberation are trying to assume aggressively the mantle of leadership before they've, been properly, or before they've properly learned the apostolic faith And while they have come under the influence of false teachers who are rewriting the creation story to suit the inclinations of the new Roman women, Paul won't stand for it. Paul wants women to learn and to avoid being deceived precisely because they are vital to the corporate teaching ministry of the churches. Three take-homes. And the worship team is going to come and lead us in a song. I know it's a lot to take in, but here's a few things to take home. First, remember, the gifts, whatever gifts you have are to be used in love, and love is patient. This means, though we might not quite know what we think about all this yet, I'm guessing that for some people you've never heard anything like this before. Just a guess. And you might be like, I need to think about this a little bit. Wonderful. You can do that. It took me years of reading this text in Greek, in its context, before I was like, yeah, I don't think Paul is making a blanket prohibition here. I don't expect that everybody overnight will come to think the same way as me, or ever maybe, but what we do need to do is be patient with each other and be patient with each other and ourselves. Second, if you're a female and you've sensed God gift you in areas or call you to things that you didn't think were open, well, perhaps those gifts really were from God. Perhaps that calling really was from Him. I don't see an indication that spiritual gifts come in pink and blue. Third thing, I know that some of you will have some serious objections still. I know that. Like, what about the eldership question, though, about the lead pastor role? Are you saying that's open to women, too? Doesn't the very next text, 1 Timothy 3, suggest it's not? Or what about the home? Like, isn't there a headship in the home? Does this challenge that? Those are great questions. We're going to dip into some of it next week. And as we study Ephesians, that's what's actually coming up in two weeks' time from now, we're going to start Ephesians, we're going to look more at those questions as well, because it deals with that. So again, patience will be key. It's true, though, there is a head, an ultimate authority over the church. His name is Jesus, and Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And I'm going to get you to stand as I read this out, because this is just so good. And then we're going to worship, and then we'll uh, go and drink coffee together. How about that? Paul says it like this, And God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet and appointed him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our aim as a community is to order our lives under the loving leadership of King Jesus. All Christian leadership, teaching ministries, are to follow the same path that Jesus leads us on. It's one of going down, of taking the posture of a servant, to seeking the well-being of those around us. Whatever we mean by authority in the life of the church, and there is real authority that has to function in the life of a church, whatever we mean by it has to look like washing the feet of others. And all of us can offer that to everyone else. May it be so for us. As we love and worship the one who gave his life, that we might together... The whole church reign with him forever.